Hey guys, welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, episode five. And my guest today is Neil Woodfine. Welcome, Neil, and thanks very much for taking the time. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, great. All right, so guys, I will just quickly intro Neil. Now, I've been following Neil on Twitter for a while, and I think he has just really shared a lot of great insights in terms of Bitcoin economics and comparison of Bitcoin versus other tokens. And in terms of his background within Bitcoin, he is the organizer of the Beijing Bitcoin meetup, and he has just recently left WIRE, spelled W-Y-R-E, and they are a payments company based on Bitcoin. And so Neil is now working on his own Bitcoin projects. So yeah, thanks again for jumping on today. And uh, I think what would be great insight for the listeners would just be a discussion on the Bitcoin scene on the ground in China. So maybe uh, you want to just open it up with a bit of discussion on that, Neil? Yeah, no problem. Um, So unfortunately, these days I get a little bit negative when talking about uh, Bitcoin in China. I think um, it's it's probably a bit strong to say it's dead in China right now, but um, it's certainly not doing particularly well. like I run the, the, the Bitcoin meetup uh, in, in Beijing um, uh, with uh, Richard Bensberg. And um, I think uh, right across the, the rest of the mainland China, you won't find another regular uh, Bitcoin meetup anywhere else, which is pretty amazing when you think of um, how involved uh, China has been with uh, Bitcoin in the past. Um, unfortunately, you kind of, what goes around mostly these days is uh, a lot of altcoining um, and a lot of uh, blockchaining, um, generally a lot of scams, a lot of pump and dump, um, and a lot of uh, misinformation. Um, I mean, China's always been kind of strong on certain elements in the Bitcoin space. So um, they've been very, very successful in mining. Um, like everybody knows uh, Bitmain, um, they basically own the, the, the manufacturing uh, market there. Um, most of the, the biggest mining operations are based in China. Um, and uh, also you have a number of um, the very large pools are also based, based out of China. Um, but that's about it. And these organizations aren't really um, contributing back to the community in, in any major way from what I've seen. Um, and uh, basically it's left the, the floor to all of the the old coiners and the blockchainers to kind of uh, uh, propagate their uh, their ideas, um, and it's led to a lot of kind of misleading information um, on the China and Bitcoin sphere. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a it's a bit of a problem, and there still are like a lot of kind of uh, people interested in the topic. Um, I just think there's not enough people that are willing to like kind of um, make the effort to start producing materials in Chinese and organize events like like ours. Um, to kind of uh, uh, provide to that demand. Um, so, I mean, we get good turnouts uh, between um, 50 and 100 people if we have some speakers. Um, and people are, like I say, always very, very interested. But um, uh, it pales in comparison to the number of um, blockchain events and, 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 and all coin events that are going on in Beijing and elsewhere in, in China. Um, you'll see like two or three going, going on every week. And it's not just... Um, uh, the domestic players, it's also kind of a lot of expat organizations that um, um, kind of get involved in all of this. Um, so, like, in my opinion, there's two kind of diagnoses to this problem. Uh, one is that the 
the exchanges were uh, closed in China and the regulatory situation is very uncertain. So China for a while had the biggest exchanges in the world with OKCoin and Huobi and a few other kind of lesser exchanges. Um, but with the closure of them and the, the, the uncertainty around regulations, like Bitcoin certainly doesn't seem to be welcome within China. It means that entrepreneurs and businesses can't really make any long-term plans and can't kind of invest confidently with their, their, their resources and their time in, in building any kind of uh, meaningful businesses. And so that really kind of incentivizes um, uh, short-term players, uh, get rich quick, um, basically launching product, uh, projects that um, uh, uh, make a lot of money in a short space of time and then move on before kind of the regulatory hammer comes down. So that's one of the, the kind of factors contributing to the problem. Um, the second is perhaps that a lot of people never really understood what they were getting involved in. Um, I think that's probably a bit harsh, but certainly we saw a lot of um, um, uh, Bitcoin businesses like OKCoin and Huobi um, paying a lot of lip service to um, uh, trustlessness and uh, decentralization and um, kind of uh, this new kind of financial future. But um, uh, kind of with Bitcoin closed down and uh, the, the kind of um, renminbi to Bitcoin liquidity uh, not possible anymore, they've totally changed their tune and are now um, uh, promoting all sorts of very strange um, economic models, um, a lot of kind of very questionable um, uh, uh, technology. And um, uh, it suggests that they, they, they weren't really in it for the right reasons in the first place and perhaps didn't understand. And like if they did understand, I think they would be making um, more long-term plans for kind of um, what I think people like me and you see as the future, uh, which is more kind of Bitcoin-centric. Yeah, great answer. No, that's some great insights there. And what I take from that is it sounds like there's not a very great prevalence of Austrian economics influence amongst the Chinese Bitcoin and you know what we might quote unquote call the blockchain scene, and, and it sounds as though there are quite a few Chinese sort of altcoiners and ICO pumpers. I presume, as organizer of a meetup, I presume you get a lot of offers, basically, of ICO pumpers who want to you know sponsor or have you as an advisor or to come and present to the meetup. Do you have any insights to share on that? <laughs> um. We certainly get a lot of um, uh, messages on meetup.com and LinkedIn as well, actually, um, from various different uh, organizations, both within and without China, looking to um, promote their, their projects to um, the kind of the, the, the members that we have. Um, I've, I've, from the very beginning, um, I rejected all of those. We, we had um, Gnosis come and speak. I don't know how you say that, Gnosis, Gnosis, come and speak once, because I thought the prediction market sounded quite interesting. And we were very um, uh, um, explicit that they couldn't promote their token sale whatsoever. They, could, they only had to talk about the technology. Um, but during his presentation, like the audience asked some very, very kind of, um, as they asked some probing questions and there wasn't some very, there wasn't very good responses. Um, and then, uh, like a few months later, they launched their token sale and like kept ninety percent of the token supply to themselves or something. And that was basically the last straw for me. I was like, okay, we we can't have these guys um, uh, uh, speaking anymore. And at that point, we just limited it to 
um, purely uh, Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin projects. Uh, but yeah, we we get a lot of um, offers of sponsorship. Um, a lot of people come along to the meetup and work for media organizations, which is a very kind of ambiguous term. And they're, they're always looking for kind of ways that we can cooperate. Um, I think um, that's why one, uh, a lot of kind of um, original Bitcoin meetups around the world got corrupted because for organizers of events like this, it can, be, it can become quite like a nice little revenue stream. Um, and I can see why people started taking those offers. But uh, for us, we, we figured um, misleading the, the kind of the community. And there's a lot of kind of new people coming to these events. Misleading these guys is, is, is definitely not worth it. Uh, <laughs> the fiat money yeah. corrupts us all. <laughs> um, right, well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think uh, that's a great insight that you've shared there. Um, I think the next thing that I wanted to discuss with you today, Neil, was one of your threads that really just went completely viral. It was from March 2018. And for the listeners, I will put a link in the show notes page. So what I'm going to do now is I'm actually just going to read through that thread and then we can sort of break it down a little bit in detail. So I'm going to read Neil's thread here. So one, a paraphrased response to someone asking what I think is wrong with the level of understanding of Bitcoin, blockchain and crypto right now. In 2013, when I first got into Bitcoin, the vast majority of information online regarding blockchain was Bitcoin-centric. If you got into Bitcoin, you could not avoid learning about the economics, politics and philosophy behind Bitcoin's creation, the problems it was built to solve. If you got into Bitcoin for the get-rich-quick, you stayed for the ideology. Since then, a growing number of people have realized the potential for distortions of the Bitcoin story to extract money from others. This started with pre-mined altcoins, but has expanded to permissioned blockchains, utility and equity token sales, and most recently, fork coins. All of these projects have very different, perhaps conflicting goals to Bitcoin, often representing part of the problem that Bitcoin was built to solve, namely, to remove the need for trust in online value transfer and to put constraints on monetary expansion. Now, all the people behind these projects want is for you to trust them as they freely print more and more money. What this has resulted in is an explosion of non-Bitcoin-related information online. Misinformation has become a highly profitable business. Unlike in 2013, now a newcomer to the space really has to dig to find any quality knowledge. 99% of what they read or hear is going to be junk. There is no coherent ideology within these new blockchain or cryptocurrency movements. The noble goals are gone. Focus has shifted to efficiency gains for the trivial and the esoteric. Wacky economic theories are made up on the spot based on zero references. In 2018, if you get into cryptocurrency for the get-rich-quick, you stay for the when-to-buy, when-to-sell. The scams are winning, for now. They're winning the information war that they started through sheer saturation. But ultimately, they cannot escape economic reality. If their models are fundamentally broken, they will fail, taking their investors down with them. To save money and time, it's critical that anyone getting into the space for the first time learns first about Bitcoin, not just the tech, but the economics and politics too. For some reason, ideology has become a dirty word. In the name of open-mindedness, we're supposed to relinquish any form of structured reasoning. A priori and theory are also scoffed at. Instead, real-world observations are primary, understanding secondary. 
X is worth Y, it must be valuable. I think Bitcoin's continued resilience versus its stream of pale imitators will demonstrate why both ideology and a priori are powerful and essential to taking productive action. So that was the thread by Neil. I think that was a very powerful thread, Neil. Uh, maybe let's dive into some examples of you know, contrasting Bitcoin education today versus back in 2013. So maybe if you could sketch the scene a little bit in terms of what, were, what was the scene looking like in terms of sites, resources, forums, versus then versus now? Right. So I, I think um, back in 2013, uh, when I got into it, there, there, there wasn't a whole lot of resources. And I, I think a lot of the Bitcoin space revolved around the Bitcoin subreddit. That's definitely changed today. Um, uh, for the Bitcoin space and kind of blockchain more generally. But um, yeah, certainly uh, there was a lot of um, uh, people focusing on um, this Bitcoin subreddit. Um, Nakamoto Institute was just getting kicked off then, I believe. Um, and I um, enjoyed that a lot. I learned a lot from that. And I think it was very formative in kind of um, setting my opinions early on. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a few kind of um, small blogs, but uh, there was no kind of um, uh, major major resources. Perhaps some of the Bitcoin news websites like CoinDesk and stuff like that. But all of these um, um, uh, resources were um, focused on Bitcoin um, topics. Like Bitcoin was still super new then. It was only, what, four or five years old. Um, uh, people were still working out very basic fundamental questions like, should Bitcoin have value? What, why does it have value? Uh, will it continue to have value? And um, does the technology work? Will it continue to work in the future under like certain stresses and, and, and attacks? And these were kind of like the questions that everybody was asking. So we had to talk about Bitcoin. But um, I think Bitcoin has kind of proven itself in a lot of those um, domains already. And we've kind of come to a bunch of conclusions on it, um, which means that people are starting to talk about lots of lots of other things. And unfortunately, that's led to a lot of people discussing very strange and, and, and like I say, wacky kind of um, economic theories re regarding decentralization and, and, and tokens and that kind of thing. Um, for me, like um, I originally got on the Bitcoin um, absolutely for the um, for the pump, for the, the get rich quick. Um, I didn't really have any kind of um, uh, clear ideology uh, back in 2013. Um, I was always a little bit suspicious of authority, but that that was about it. Um, and I bought some Bitcoin with some some savings and enjoyed the ride up. Um, but it was during the ride up that I learned about um, Austrian economics and libertarianism, which was a really like kind of fascinating kind of new space uh, for me. Um, and that kind of got me hooked. And so when when we started taking the ride down again. Um, it really wasn't so much about the um, uh, uh, the get rich quick anymore. It was uh, I realised there was much more to this uh, technology, way more to this to this movement. Um, and I think for people getting into into it now, uh, that is like one hundred percent not the case. Like what we have is um, an asymmetry of incentives, and I hate to invoke um, uh, Naval here, but. Um, there's incentives to creating misinformation within the blockchain space because um, with altcoins, you can make a lot of money very fast. So if you can convince people to buy into these things that you've either pre-mined or uh, given yourself a, um, a token allocation, you can 
dump it on the on the, the on the market very very quickly and make make yourself a lot of money. But for the people that are talking about reality, people that are talking about um, um, uh, theories that have been proven and, and uh, Bitcoin related materials, there's very little kind of uh, financial incentive for them to do that. And we just have this, and what that's resulted is just this explosion of of, of nonsense information. Um, and you have people that have only come into the space for a few months and they're talking about like brand new economic theories and never even read um, a real book on economics. Like, um, it's really scary. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I think it's a really uh, a bad situation that we're in, but at the same time, it's it's temporary. Like, if our theories are correct, all of these projects will ultimately fail, like if, they, if they're not sustainable. Um, and um, as they kind of collapse, they're going to teach a lot of people a lot of lessons. And um, uh, hopefully that uh, they will still have enough kind of interest to um, uh, uh, pursue and, um, and, and look into uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin related uh, materials. Yeah, that's a great point. I think as people get burnt from some of the more you know, scammy type projects, they may, you know, some, some of them may come come back to realize where the real value was to begin with and was there all along yeah uh one interesting and, 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 and another sorry another thing is that like um it, uh, it, it might sound like i'm um saying that a lot of this um uh, this um, misinformation and the scamming is intentional it doesn't have to be intentional i think a lot of these people are absolutely convinced that they're correct and and um, they have no reason to doubt it because they're making a lot of money from it. Like there's no downsides for them when these these projects fail, so they can kind of just continue going. It feels like something's something's going right. Uh, in some ways, they don't really have any skin in the game um, in the way that they structure these uh, these projects. Um, so I think that like it's not necessarily people that are like um, um, maliciously trying to to scam people. But uh, essentially what they're running is still scams. And if they're not thinking about the projects, if they're not thinking about the, um, the incentives and the structures within these, uh, these projects enough themselves, then, then, then like kind of that's also their fault. Yeah, yeah. No, great point as well. I think we have a mixture of scammers in this space. We've got the intentional ones and the unintentional ones who who actually think they're doing the right thing, right? And I think you make a good point in your thread when you say efficiency gains for the trivial and esoteric. So, you know, an example of that might be people who go around, run around talking about their little project that they think is going to take over the world, but they don't understand that it pales in significance against Bitcoin's, you know, kind of mission to try and rework global money. Do you have any examples of, you know, some of these kind of trivial and esoteric projects or kind of the aims that they're going for compared to Bitcoin? I mean, uh, uh, one that I, one example that I use quite often is the, um, the uh, decentralized storage um, uh, uh, kind of meme that a lot of the um, cryptocurrencies are uh, running on the on the back of uh, this idea that uh, we need to um, decentralize um, storage and we need a token to 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 pay for it. Like, um, I don't really find storage to be a problem um, in my life. I don't think any businesses that I know of or have worked with um, have problems with storage, and there's not like a gigantic uh, benefit there. Um, I mean, that's just one example. 
but I mean, there's 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 there's, there's, there's hundreds of others, right? Um, you're putting me on the spot here. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, no, that's totally fair. Um, um, but like with Bitcoin, the the goals are very very clear. Like, um, what we want to do is create um, uh, a, um, an online value transfer system, something that's native to the internet, that doesn't require any third parties, can't be censored, and is um, objectively scarce. And that's like you can sum it up in a sentence. Um, and like the impact is like when you understand monetary economics and the fact that like money is the heart, one half of every single transaction in an economy, like you realize like this has very big implications. But when you talk to kind of people that are buying into the, 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 the blockchain space and the cryptocurrency space, it's very difficult for them to describe, um, the mission of, of, of this movement. Like, there's, like I said in the, um, in the tweet, there's, there's no coherent ideology whatsoever. Um, like it's lost all of the kind of libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism. Austrian economics is all gone. And just um, these very big and ambiguous goals like decentralization. And um, and another thing I, I find it's like kind of almost a little bit anti-capitalist and kind of anti-progress um, in that they, they describe corporations as like kind of um, a negative for society because they have, profit incentives and the um, uh, services cost more because the companies are taking a cut but like that's how business works and those incentives are the incentives for the businesses to provide better services and actually the, through competition those those uh, margins are always kept fairly minimal um, whereas like we know that decentralized systems I mean Bitcoin's a great example they're not very efficient like they're, they're very expensive to run um, they're typically very slow and like people aren't necessarily um, going to get a good service for them when it's applied outside of the um, the monetary sphere um, and then you've got the problem that like uh, they're all inflationary so we've got multiple different projects all launching their own tokens like ad infinite uh, just for forever and like it's a very very inflationary uh, so like, it's, it, like when I say it's um, counter to what Bitcoin stands for, we've got like something that's very anti-capitalist and, um, and very, very inflationary. It feels to me like, and I mean, all these projects rely on a lot of trust because they have very, very centralized development teams and um, aren't particularly secure from a um, proof of work perspective. Um, they just seem to be completely at odds with the goals of Bitcoin and, and I don't actually um, uh, believe in um, decentralization or kind of um, uh, disintermediation. Yeah, great points. Agreed. Um, all right. So I suppose then let's contrast that and let's you know talk about what resources are there out there that you believe are actually good ones for you know new people to learn about Bitcoin. Yeah, this is this is something that I've, I've got an article. I've got like about ten medium articles that just never get finished. But one is like um, um, good resources for people. I mean. Um, Obviously, I'm a huge fan of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. I think that is a brilliant resource, particularly the crash course um, in um, uh, politi uh, Bitcoin's political economy. I think that everybody getting into Bitcoin, cryptocurrency or blockchain for the first time, like absolutely has, has to read that. Um, uh, there's also Jameson Lopp's uh, very good um, summary, although I, I find that that can be sometimes overwhelming for somebody new and they can kind of get lost. Um, or very very bored, um, so I'm kind of cautious about um, sending that sending that out to people. 
But uh, these days, my best resource is Twitter, and like nothing beats a well curated um, uh, Twitter Twitter feed. Um, and I would recommend that everybody makes makes the effort to kind of curate their own Twitter feed. But um, one of these days, I'll put out my article with a, a bunch of recommendations for um, uh, people who follow. Yeah, no, agreed. I think I think the Nakamoto Institute crash course is one of the best ways to come into this space and really learn what are the key things to understand. And I think, you know, it's a great point that you make about Twitter trying to curate your own feed in such a way that you get, you know, high signal, low noise. And I think the challenge that a newbie in, you know, 2018 or late 2017 is they don't know who to even listen to, you know, and that's that's you know yep. that's really what your what your thread was really about is that there's just so much noise out there. It's very hard to filter down to what is the signal, what is where is the who's who are the people to listen to, right? Because it's such yep. a multidisciplinary thing that you just you can't really no one person can really be an expert in all of the areas. So, yeah, it's definitely a difficult uh, spot there for a newbie. So. Um, yeah, so l- let's move on to the next thread that I wanted to discuss, which was a thread that you had, and basically the point about it was you were saying Bitcoin is not about functionality, usability, or convenience. It's currently quite bad at all of those things, but it's about sound money. Did you want to sort of ex- expand a little bit on that theme? Yeah, um, so often these tweet storms are triggered by uh, people that I'm talking to in real life, and they'll start like throwing some questions or some arguments my way and I kind of summarize them in a tweet zone. But um, in this one, I think uh, somebody was criticizing Bitcoin for not being particularly convenient and difficult to use. And like, it's never going to succeed as a result. Um, What I was trying to get across to them was that like um, Bitcoin is already very, very successful and um, it's not succeeding because it's, it's useful and it, um, it won't succeed because it's useful because I mean, we already have some very, very useful payment technology um, like in China and Alipay rocks in terms of usability. Like they've, they've really nailed it. Um, but unfortunately it's Alipay is getting worse um, recently because it's reliant on this um, um, fiat kind of uh, renminbi um, uh, backbone and um, increasingly kind of, KYC and AML is rearing its uh, ugly head and um, it's becoming um, more and more difficult to to, to use. Uh, so one example is you can only make um, transactions up to a certain amount in a year. Uh, I think it's like something like uh, 200,000 um, uh, renminbi or something like that. Once you go over that, that's it. You, you can't make any more transfers to anyone. What you have to do if you ever receive money into one of these wallets, whether it's um, Alipay or, or WeChat, you have to first withdraw it to your bank account, but then you can still send it out again via the app, but it has to come from your bank account. You get all these kind of like crazy kind of friction um, entering the system. And this is because it's built on um, a base layer, which is not trustless, which relies on third parties and is uh, starting to get kind of um, all sorts of interventions. Um, and that's where Bitcoin offers its value proposition. Like uh, it, its value comes from the fact that um, it's trustless, that um, it can't be censored, and that it's it's scarce. And and that's what's going to lead lead to its success. That's not to say that like usability is not something that we should be shouldn't be working towards. Like there's all sorts of um, 
businesses and kind of um, uh, developers working on really interesting um, solutions to this. Um, it's not something that I'm particularly uh, concerned with. And I think we always have to bear in mind that like Bitcoin has some very kind of key, unique value propositions that don't exist um, elsewhere. Uh, and we have to focus on those and kind of protect those and, and develop upon them um, before we start talking about usability or expanding usability. Yep, great points. Yeah, and I think the point I take away from that thread is really just that we have to keep layer one trustless that really all of these other fancy pants, you know, usability, convenience, functionality, a lot of those points are just going to have to come in on upper, you know, layer two, layer three, higher layers. That's what. That's um, how I would think of that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 maybe we can. Um, somebody will come up with a great solution for making um, layer one more efficient, more usable. I don't think that should be uh, resisted. Um, it just, according to current like uh, analysis and like theoretically, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't seem like layer one is going to scale much more um, than it already has. And yeah. Therefore, we should. Therefore, we should focus focus on layer two. Um, another point on this, as well, is like I work in the payments industry, and one thing that I often say is that payments is a regulatory game and not a technical one. Like the reason why PayPal and um, TransferWise and all of these um, payment companies succeed is because they're very very good at navigating the regulatory landscape, adapting to regulatory changes. That's where the success comes from. Lowering the the cost of transactions is um, like using economies of scale to deal with um, uh, the regulatory obstacles that are put in the way. Um, it's not a technology. So when you have these fintech companies and they're talking about technology, payments is not really about technology. It's all about um, managing that, that that regulatory risk. But with Bitcoin, it totally flips. And now all of the the the, the, the payment issues and efficiency and stuff, all of it becomes a technical issue now. Now we're not talking about like regulations and KYC and ML um, uh, jurisdictions and different um, uh, uh, fiat and uh, FX markets and all of that. Now we're just talking about the technology, and like the, it's going to be really, really um, huge kind of benefit to payments and financial transactions. I think we're going to see a lot of um, uh, really interesting developments in that space. Yeah, excellent artic- articulation there, Neil. I think yeah, you make a great point there that really a lot of these payment companies are just. Their skill is in dealing with regulation. It's not in coming up with, you know, architecting clever technical solutions. So, great point. Um, I think the next one to get into is around, yeah, you had another thread, which is around the, what we might call the bad incentives of people who make unnecessary tokens and ICOs. And so, in this thread, you basically talk about how a lot of these ICOs and altcoins, and they're, they're, they're often cynical money grabs, and they're just using kind of, unnecessarily fancy words and they're basically interposing unnecessary tokens so did you want to expand a little bit on that <laughs> if anybody follows me on twitter they've heard a lot about this because i talk about it a lot probably way too much um yeah but i i think like um right now like a lot of people are coming to a conclusion on um silicon valley that perhaps it's not all we made out to be. Certainly when I entered the startup space, there was a lot of kind of big VCs and a lot of kind of startup thought leaders that I looked up to. But um, as we enter this kind of like Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto mania, I'm starting to realize that a lot of these people that I respected perhaps 
um, aren't as kind of um, screwed on as I thought thought they were. Um, and I think what we've seen with the kind of altcoin token mania is kind of like this ultimate culmination of like Silicon Valley ideology, which is like build fast and break things, like just experiment for experiment's sake, uh, pump and dump, um, like with like IPOs and acquisitions. And like we've got to the point where they've dropped all pretense of like building something useful with like actual revenue streams, no cash flow, and we're just into pure equity. So we're into like this project that sells itself on just story marketing. And like the the thing that's like the product that's sold is just equity. Like we kind of um, just it's kind of all this 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 kind of insanity that's going on. Um, and then we look at the incentives within the um, within the systems that they're proponents for, and they just don't add up. So in any of these, I think like we brought up the example previously of um, um, uh, shared storage. Um, typically, within these networks, you're going to have um, two types of user. You're going to have the, the actual users, the people that are gaining value from the system, and the, the service providers. So, in the um, the case of um, uh, sharing, uh, in, in the case of the shared storage, you've got somebody sharing their hard drive to the network in exchange for tokens. And if you look at it closely, there's no incentive for either of these entities to hold the token. So the user doesn't want to hold the token. He just wants to buy um, storage space. And then the service provider receives these tokens in exchange for providing um, some hard drive space. Like He doesn't want to use the service himself. He's, he's a service provider. He doesn't want to go on to spend these tokens on somebody storing his information. So he definitely doesn't want to store the tokens either. And so he has to liquidate. Um, and then you look at the founders of the project, um, the, 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 the CEO and the, the developers that are working on it. All of these guys also don't want to hold onto the tokens in the long term. The, the whole point of the token model is that they create what they call incentives for them to develop open source software. And that their incentive is to dump their incentive is to sell these tokens at some point in the future. And um, so one question I often like to ask these when I'm kind of trolling in real life is like, what, what's your target price? Like when, when are you going to dump? Because I think that's incredibly important information for anybody that's investing in the project. Because once these people have dumped their tokens, these incentives that they're all talking about suddenly don't exist anymore. So there's no more kind of interest in kind of um, uh, uh, continuing to develop on the project. Um, and then you've got all of the kind of um, uh, satellites to these projects, which are described as advisors and then promoters. And you'll have, like, I'm sure a bunch of meetup organizers also taking tokens in exchange for um, um, allowing these people to promote to their networks. Um, all of these guys also don't want to hold the tokens. They're not interested in buying hard drive space. They just want to, to sell. And, like, when you break it down like this, you realize that no one wants to hold the tokens at all. It's zero people want to hold them. And um, and how can you um, uh, um, sell this as an investment? How can you describe it as an incentive if everybody within the network um, is incentivized to sell? Um, it just doesn't. It just doesn't add up. Um, yeah. 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 And uh, even more. And like, that, and I think I think a lot of people just a lot of people just um, use the analogy of like a fairground. 
and people uh, pay tickets to get in the fairground and get access to the service. And so like, I'm going to go to um, um, storage or whatever, and like, I'm going to buy their tokens so I can use use their service. But the thing is with the fairground, they fix the prices. Like there is no free market. There is no exchange rate. Like the exchange rate is set by the fairground and they force you, if you're going to enter their territory to, 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 to pay for a ticket at a set price. And you can't, you can't, you can't achieve that when you're, you're selling these things and allowing, allowing people to speculate on a, on an exchange. Like it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it, it drives me crazy that, um, these people don't have any kind of um, ideological um, or kind of uh, literature, literature backing to their economic theories. Like you have some very, very intelligent people that have like been successful in the past and they have no kind of basis for the theories that they're, um, that they're um, proposing. Um, and I find that very, very uh, um, offensive um, uh, that they think that that's okay. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and I think the other point just to add to that is it's also it's not only is there nobody who wants to hold it, it's that the the timing is all completely wrong because these ICOs they get paid up front and so then now they have no more incentive to actually go and build an actual build a working viable product. They just get all the money up front and they can just skip and run or they could, you know, put in the most token, you know, very poor <laughs> effort and some tokenistic effort, if you will, and then just say, oh, well, it couldn't work. We failed. Oh, well, guess, you know, we're just going to scoot off with the money. Exactly. And, and that's that's the theory. So we look at, like, we just kind of think about it a priori. We look at it and we're like, okay, that is going to be the result of this system. And then you look at what's actually happened. That's what's actually happening. Like, you get these people that are launching multiple projects one after the other. Um, there is no incentive for them to stay on once they've, they've raised that money and, and a lot of them perhaps will stay on, but they get to live out this like strange kind of like Silicon Valley CEO um, fantasy where they just like hire a bunch of people and get them to do things while they kind of like relax and, 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 and kind of command people to, to develop very, very questionable products. It's nuts. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Um, the next one I wanted to ask you about is just a discussion on Nassim Taleb's concept of the intolerant minority. So some people have commented in the past that they believe, okay, it's Bitcoin's intolerant minority that's going to make it win. Uh, but I think you had a slightly different point of view. Did you want to expand on that? Uh, yeah, so I, 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 like, um, I think even within the kind of Bitcoin maximalist space, I'm probably a little bit contrarian on this one because I don't think... Um, this makes sense at all. Um, I think it's uh, analog to the um, Bitcoin as a cult religion. Bitcoin is tribal. I think it's the same as that um, that argument. This kind of idea that um, uh, Bitcoin is kind of like a, a confidence game or perhaps a marketing game, and we have to convince people um, to use it. Um, I think in Taleb's theory of like. Um, uh, was it the dictatorship of the minority? Um, what he's describing is not people um, kind of buying into these uh, to the to the ideology of the minority. It's them being flexible, adapting to it. Um, whereas I think in in Bitcoin, what we want to see and what we expect to see is completely the opposite. We're, if Bitcoin is a superior 
um, uh, monetary asset if it if it's better than um, fiat in both scarcity and like um, uh, ability to use it freely, um, then people will use it because it provides them benefits, and they will eventually buy into the system for uh, for its benefits. Um, instead of them kind of being like, oh, okay, the Bitcoin is being stubborn again. Okay, we'll, we'll use Bitcoin. Actually, I think in a monetary system, being um, a stubborn minority is really bad. Like um, if you look at the Bcash guys, they're not going to do very well if they're going against the majority. Like money relies on the fact that you're part of the majority and that you can exchange it for more things. Um so, like, uh, yeah, I, I don't particularly like this, like, intolerant um, uh, uh, meme. Um, I think it kind of um, describes Bitcoin as, as bullheaded when actually they're, they're very, very open-minded and um, um, are just kind of making decisions based on um, the reality as they see it. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's a great point you make. And actually, the um, Bcash analogy is quite a good one. I, yeah, I haven't heard that before. And I think if I had to summarize that, that thought, it's it's sort of like saying it's not that Bitcoin is going to win because of because the peop- the Bitcoiners are so intolerant. Bitcoin is going to win because of its monetary superiority. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, um, for example, the internet uh, was not... Um, successful because we had a minority of people insisting that you send them an email instead of um, uh, sending them a letter. Like people chose to send emails because they were they were more convenient, um, they were faster, they were cheaper, all of that stuff. Mm. Um, with Bitcoin, people are going to choose Bitcoin because um, it's scarce and therefore can hold its value much better than um, a fiat currency, and because they can send it without having to ask a third party for permission. Um, yeah. And those are the qualities that are going to attract people to it. And they're not going to be adopting it because they're being flexible to a to a small minority. They're going to adopt it because they actually personally want to use it and see see the benefits. Yep. And perhaps now the flip side of this argument, the other way people come at it is they say, oh, you Bitcoiners, you're so toxic. Does Bitcoin need to be more, more quote unquote, civil to win or can it win regardless? <laughs> um, like... <laughs> Who, more civil to who? Like the people that this comes from are generally like uh, uh, one of like a bunch of categories. They're either altcoiners um, who are basically promoting um, uh, these very nonsensical um, economic systems and um, not really contributing much. You got the private blockchainers um, who uh, um, are just like uh, glorified um, consultants in most cases. And who generally don't know anything about technology. Um, and then you've got uh, proponents of the fiat system and no coiners. And yeah, Bitcoiners are uncivil to them, but like all of these, I mean, particularly the, the no coiners are kind of enemies of enemies of Bitcoin and um, they're causing a lot of harm um, uh, by promoting the ideas that they're promoting and they deserve to uh, be criticized and, and, and held to the flame for it, in my opinion. Um, from my experience, like Bitcoiners are extremely civil. Um, uh, like I recommend anybody that thinks Bitcoin is not civil to head to a, a Bitcoin focused event, whether it's a Bitcoin meetup or um, uh, something like building on Bitcoin or um, uh, Baltic Honey Badger. Like these events are incredibly civil. Like, everybody's super nice and welcoming and um, doesn't get on anybody's back, even even in debates. 
um, I think, uh, yeah, people are just a little bit upset because their their ideas are being criticised, and uh, and they don't like it. I mean, actually, another point on that. Um, I bumped into a bunch of ICO guys recently at some of the events that I've been attending. And to, in real life, I find them to be completely obnoxious because, I mean, I'll give them the cold shoulder if they start like chatting about their, their ICO projects, but they will insist on describing why their, their, their project makes sense. Um, and it won't leave you alone. Uh, like, I'm pretty sure if you chat to a Bitcoiner and uh, they weren't interested, uh, uh, you weren't interested in talking to them, they would, they, would, they would be cool with that and just kind of move on. But uh, these ICO guys are on a mission to to, to um, frame themselves as not not scammers. Yeah, yeah, you got uh, the missionaries. All right. Um, the yeah. next one I wanted to t- chat about, and I've seen you comment on this, is just the absurdity of regressing back to barter. Like, let's say you had bread coin and steak coin and milk coin. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, like essentially that, that that's what um, this kind of multi-coin model is proposing um, there's an infinite number of services that we can provide in the world therefore like do we have an infinite number of tokens I think multi-coiners would suggest any online service would require its own token um, uh, but like uh, if you um, compare that to the to the real world um, uh, like every service and good that we buy doesn't require its own token and if we did all use a separate token for each different service, it would be incredibly inefficient. Like anybody that's read about the, the emergence of, of money knows that the reason that money exists and that we gravitate towards one um, uh, commodity for, for, for monetary use is because it's like multi-coin model is completely inefficient. And it's just a, a gigantic backward step towards barter where we have tokens that represent all the things that we can think of, um, uh, again, like uh, total madness. And I think sometimes when you you ask these people how it would work, I can really drill down with them. I've tried it a few times. They'll generally start describing things like um, baskets of tokens and like um, indexes uh, um, and using atomic swaps and decentralized exchanges to flick in and out of these different tokens. Um, but I, I don't think they understand um, like how uh, liquidity works on an exchange. Like um, I've worked at an exchange and building liquidity is really, really difficult. Um, and the idea that you could have like um, 10,000 coins all with a, a pair with another 10,000 other coins um, is total madness. You wouldn't be able to build up any kind of serious liquidity between all those tokens. You'd have to go through one token which had more liquidity with all the other tokens i.e um bitcoin and um and again for any of these tokens the more exchangeable they are the the better these atomic swaps get the more efficient they are the less reason you have to hold any of the tokens at, at any one point you hold your bitcoin and then when you want to use one of these very questionable services you immediately convert your bitcoin into the token spend it get whatever service that you wanted. Um, and then the um, recipient on the other side immediately liquidates via its atomic swap into, into Bitcoin. And then the token like cannot achieve any kind of meaning of meaningful value uh, whatsoever. Um, yeah, yeah, great. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, these guys have a very, very hard time describing 
in in any kind of um, uh, clear way how 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 this model would work. Yeah, yeah, and I think you make a fantastic point there about how the better atomic swaps get between the different cryptocurrencies, whether they're centralized or decentralized at- atomic swaps the better that is for Bitcoin because now there's even less reason to hold these altcoins. There's more reason that people would want to just go to the best one and not waste time holding a sub, you know, a subpar coin or a coin with less liquidity. You'd want to get out of that as soon right. as you can. So the only reason that you would ever hold um, one of these tokens is because these projects have created artificial friction that requires you to um, use one to, to access their service. But I mean, like if you think about like your toolbox at home you hold your toolbox you buy a toolbox and you hold your toolbox at home and because uh you need it like um immediately when when you need it right um uh, and it's inconvenient to go to a store buy a new toolbox and then fix whatever you're um fix whatever you're repairing but if you could um, make the toolbox appear in an instant and um uh, disappear in an instant you wouldn't um you wouldn't ever need to buy that toolbox and hold it at all you would just kind of um, swap in and out um, and in exactly the same way with these tokens um, people are just going to uh, or I'm saying they're going to actually nobody's going to do this because none of this makes sense but let's say um, there was a project that required this and nobody's going to hold the token um, they're just going to uh, buy and sell it exactly fantastic analogy I like the toolbox one um, that's really good okay um, now, the next one um, is uh, it's, a, it's a common little canard or a little uh, confusion that you see in the community. And sometimes even you know people who are kind of pro-Bitcoin make this error. They, I guess I'll ask it this way. Is Bitcoin backed by energy, math, scarcity, or decentralization? <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, people are using this, uh, this backed by term um, totally willy-nilly. Uh, uh, it's starting to lose all meaning. So um, historically, in a monetary context, backed by means um, there is a, um, a commodity sitting somewhere in um, a, a vault um, that uh, whatever you're using as the currency represents. And that's that's what backed by means in, 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 a, in a monetary sense. Um, but now, like, uh, we st- I mean, perhaps it was the US dollar that started it, I don't know, but like uh, it's backed by the, the faith of the US government or whatever it says on the um, on the dollar bills. Um, it's backed, a lot of people say it's backed by um, the taxpayer, um, it's backed by um, the military, um, things like that. And then now we've seen that kind of expanded into the cryptocurrency space um, uh, where people start saying like it's backed by decentralization, it's backed by um, all these uh, weird and wonderful things. But um, I think if we're going to really like um, succeed with this kind of monetary revolution, then we have to start using terms properly. Like the, the, one of the reasons that we're in this mess in the first place is because people have forgotten what money is and how to use um, uh, these terms. Um, so uh, like when we uh, we talk about backed by, I think Bitcoin is just backed by Bitcoin. It's not backed by anything else. It's um, the, the energy used um, to create it is the same as the energy used to um, mine gold, for example. And we don't say gold is, is, is backed by energy. It, it's nonsensical. Um, all Bitcoin is is a scarce commodity. Um, yes, it requires energy um, uh, to, 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 um, to obtain it. Uh, and yes, 
Um, it relies on decentralization to maintain its its scarcity and maintain its censorship resistance, but it's not it's not backed by any of these things. And um, we may in the future, I expect that we will start to see um, Bitcoin derivatives, and then we can start seeing that like this token that we're um, um, sending around is backed by Bitcoin. You can probably possibly see it about Liquid, Foxstream's Liquid. I don't know, like the tokens on there are backed by Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, I think we need to start using that that that, that term um, uh, more correctly. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Fantastic point. I like the way you uh, articulated that there as well. Okay, so I think uh, the last one is just a bit of a throwaway one. Thought it was kind of funny. I saw a good tweet by you. You said uh, it's and it's related to Nassim Taleb's concept, skin in the game. So you said so. The tweet here is never met an ETH investor who is saving their coins to use on a smart contract themselves. All BTC hodlers I know are saving their coins to purchase things and make investments in the future. Yeah, so this this plays back into the um, incentives to kind of hold and dump that we we talked about earlier. Um, but like uh, when I'm talking to um, heads, as they're called, um, about Ethereum, like I, I like it wasn't me that said it; somebody else on Twitter um, mentioned it. Um, I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the questions they like to ask them is, uh, what's your favorite smart contract? Um, and that often is a difficult question to answer for them. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, like uh, in the same way, it's like, okay, what, what, what are you saving your tokens to, uh, to spend spend on? Like what, what smart contract are you looking to spend those, those, those ethers on? And, and generally there's not, there's not, there's not a good answer and uh, they tend to try to worm their way out of it. Um, whereas, like every single Bitcoin long-term holder that I know, are all looking forward to. I mean, there is an element, certainly an element of get rich quick to it, um, but are looking forward to um, buying things with it, having fun, but then also kind of investing and creating businesses um, uh, and basically using the tokens that they're holding as as money. Whereas the Ethereum people are far less sure about what they're going to use them for. They, I think, they secretly and really don't want to say it but they're all looking forward to somebody else wanting to use these smart contracts so they can sell their sell their ethereum to them but i don't think that that person's going to come yeah great great point i think it's sort of like a smart contract greater fool theory sort of thing going on there yeah okay yeah. so i think um we're, we're getting uh, pretty much to the end of the time so uh did you have any final comments that you wanted to make neil um, no, I, I'm good. That was a fantastic chat. Um, you've had some amazing guests on um, uh, uh, prior to me, so it's an, uh, an honour to, to to be on the show. Oh, mate, and, it was a pleasure um, to have you yeah. on as well. All right. Well, I, 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 will... I would like. Yep. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was go just going to say on. anybody <laughs> anybody uh, who's on Twitter definitely needs to follow me if they're not following me already. Yes, guys. So you can find <laughs> Neil on Twitter. His handle is N Woodfine. I will put the link to Neil's Twitter account on the show notes page for this episode, as well as some links to some of the tweet threads and comments that uh, Neil has made that we discussed today. Um, so, guys, look on my website, stefanlevera.com, search SLP5, and that will be the show notes page for this episode. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just finally, if you uh, enjoy the show, please give it a five-star rating and share it with your friends. Uh, and with that said, um, we'll say goodbye to you guys and uh, see you in the next one. Thanks. Bye.